TED Audio Collective. Hey everyone, it's Corey Hagem, TED's business curator, and this is TED Business. I'm back to share another talk from 2021, one of my favorites. And I have to tell you, it's super hard to choose. It's like choosing your favorite child. You're really not supposed to do that. But this one's really special to me. Irma Olguin Jr. delivered this talk in August of last year at our Monterey conference. It's about her journey from Fresno, California, a region dominated by agriculture, to college, to the tech industry, back to Fresno, and what that journey did for her and ultimately for her hometown. I don't want to give too much of it away. So give it a listen and then stick around. After the talk, there is even more talking, but this time it's a conversation between Irma and myself about her experience as an entrepreneur. That's coming up after the break. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. Hey, TED Business listeners. We're supported by our friends at Working Smarter, a new podcast from Dropbox exploring the exciting potential of AI in the workplace. Working Smarter talks with founders, researchers, and engineers about the things they're building and the problems they're solving with the help of the latest AI tools. Tools that can save them time, improve collaboration, and create more space for the work that matters most. On Working Smarter, hear practical discussions about what AI can do so that you can work smarter too. Listen to Working Smarter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit workingsmarter.ai. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Fresno and the entire Central Valley of California is a place that's built by agriculture. Miles and miles of farmland for as far as the eye can see with a couple of large, poor cities dotting the landscape. That's where I'm from, where I was born and where I live today. My family, like much of the local population, is a family of immigrant farm laborers, those toiling away in the fields, hoping for a 25 cent an hour raise. I didn't see myself destined for the glamour of Silicon Valley, 
But I did find my way to college, and something miraculous happened. I got a job in tech. And I remember the first time I didn't have to count the change when trying to figure out how much to tip for pizza delivery, when I realized that this industry, the technology industry, was going to change my life forever. And I remember thinking to myself, if it can happen to me, a poor, queer, brown woman from nowhere, why can't it happen to entire cities of people like me? And so for the last eight years, that's what I've been working on in Fresno, building a business that could expose what it takes to cause an entire city, and not just a select few people in it, to thrive. It turns out we only need three pretty simple ingredients, training, proof, and community. So the cornerstone of everything that we do is job training. The communities that we work with are often from very poor populations, maybe folks who are learning English as a second language, maybe they were unhoused, the formerly incarcerated veterans, folks who are very often from retail or factory work. These folks, their issue is not their ability to learn technical things. Their problems center on things that are a lot less obvious. Things like childcare, transportation, hunger, money. So those are the things that we focus on. It can be especially hard on families. How do you justify learning to do something like write code when there are bills to pay? Wouldn't it be better for the family if you just got a job at McDonald's and put in as many hours as you can? Because that's a check. And who's going to watch your little brother? That's what we do as a family. We pitch in. But how do you justify to the people around you when it looks to them like you're just playing around on the computer? We didn't invent a new way to teach JavaScript. We just focus a lot more on the things that actually prevent people from learning it. In addition to connecting our students to things like bus tokens and free regional transit options, we also just deploy a fleet of vehicles whose only job is to pick these folks up before their study groups and drop them back off after class. If they need food, we get them food. We work with food cupboards and pantries and making sure that boxes of food are delivered to these students' homes with enough for a family of three to five people. We connect them to childcare options that make sense for their schedules and their budgets. But most importantly, because cash is such a center of energy and decision-making for these families, through our apprenticeship program, we literally pay them to learn. So not only do they get to earn a wage and are exposed to real-world work, but now they also have that first line on the resume, the one that's so hard to get and the one that builds confidence in the rest of the world that you might know what you're talking about. And so you might be thinking to yourself, okay, Irma, this sounds great, but it sounds really expensive. So how do you pay for it? We've turned a long-held idea on its head. We have to stop putting the burden, the financial burden, on the student and the families who are already struggling and start putting it on the people and the entities that benefit most from their untapped potential. Entities like government, corporations, philanthropy. These are the entities that benefit from the development of that talent, and so that's who we get to pay for it. Let's throw back the curtain on what I'm trying to say here. The U.S. spends a trillion dollars skilling up a workforce for this country, 
Many of those programs have mixed results, and while some folks who come out of them do, in fact, earn higher wages at the end, while they're still learning, when they're still in training, many of these folks can't also work, which means that they're not bringing home a check, which means that they're still in survival mode, which means that the people who would benefit most can't participate to begin with. That's where a system like ours makes some sense. We apply for allocations of that same kind of money and use it to pay people to learn. We also work with corporations. Q&A testing, for example, is a job that can be taught and a role that companies desperately need. Training up a batch of Q&A engineers is low-hanging fruit and has almost instant results for companies. For the companies to invest in the development of that talent, it breeds them a local and eager technology workforce from which to choose. Companies that are in a growth mode or who are experiencing a digital transformation, they know that the key to their future is their ability to find, hire, and retain talent. We can train up entire cohorts or a generation of junior-level and apprentice-level technologists trained directly to their systems, ready to be hired on day one. We've worked with all kinds of companies, getting them to pay for things like tuition and money for students to accomplish exactly this goal. Philanthropy's interest here may be even easier to describe. Foundations and nonprofits, they want to see their money put to good use. Take the Quality Jobs Fund, for example. It's a collaborative effort between the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco and the New World Foundation. And their express mission is to address inequality through quality jobs expansion and skills development. We apply for allocations or grants from philanthropies like those, work with the government dollars that we just described, and companies in the way that we just talked about, put it all together to use it to pay people to learn. So that's how you pay for it. Now, what is it that these folks should learn on? In our view, it's real-world software projects, because that is the proof. You see, all of the software that the world needs built has to get made. And so we can leverage talent from these underrepresented communities to deliver on that need, build a training ground for green talent, and also build a really robust business. We'll take Onward US as just one example. It was a rapid response initiative in response to COVID where we partnered with the KPOR Center. It was adopted by the state of California and then 10 other states. The idea was to take displaced workers, folks who were affected by COVID, connect them to money and services and new jobs. We took a high-level senior software engineer who could architect the full platform and then apprentices who could execute on that roadmap. And in 11 days, we had a functioning prototype. You see the local mom and pop, the school district, the regional manufacturer, they all have software needs and they're gonna pay someone to do it. With this model, they can have their solutions delivered back to them, but also participate in the creation of high growth, high wage jobs in their area. The last ingredient in our recipe is community. We need vibrant spaces that meet the aspirations of technologists and entrepreneurs. So we build castles for the underdogs. We buy blighted buildings in our downtowns for pennies on the dollar, improve them, lease them back out to ourselves and others in the technology industry. This creates community around the idea of leveling up entry-level humans. 
and builds a shared understanding and value around what it means to have access to unlimited talent. The first project that we did was a building that had stood empty for 40 years before we took it over. We showed up with our tenant list and our ability to do work. Our partner showed up with a building that was empty and decaying. We painted the walls. We built a bunch of desks. We hung a lot of TVs. And when the coffee shop opened at the front of that building, it was like someone had flipped a switch on that corner of downtown. Suddenly, there were a thousand students and tenants and community members visiting that building each day. These ingredients, when you take them all together, they produce real impact, driven by real change that affect real people who have names and faces and families and pets. Just one quick example, our pal Miguel, uh, who was once incarcerated. He didn't have any prospects for his future, his professional life, or really his family. He was scholarshiped through our pre-apprenticeship program using government dollars. Miguel veered just to the left of computer programming, landed neck deep in analytics and website funnels. He apprenticed for our digital marketing program. 18 months later, Miguel has a full-time job a great salary, benefits, and a matching 401k. We've worked with over 5,000 students, and of those entering our career programs, over 80% earn technical employment. And in Fresno, this means that that new technology workforce is greater than 50% female or gender nonconforming, greater than 50% minority or Latinx, and 20% first generation. And those demographics mirror the demographics of our county. These are folks leaving restaurant, retail, factory, and field labor, earning on average less than $20,000 a year, exiting the programs earning $60,000 to $80,000 a year. That's gas in the tank and rent paid on time. And when you do that enough times, you see more sandwiches being purchased at the local panini shop, newer, more reliable cars taking these folks to work, the tax base improving, which invests in schools and rebuilds roads, homes in those communities that are being built or bought by the people who are actually going to live in them, dilapidated buildings that once stood empty, now full of energized underdogs sipping coffee and writing code, and most importantly, bringing with them the next generation of human that didn't see themselves leaving the packing house until they saw their pal make it work. And we can do this. You know, it's not at all a mystery. But we do have to do three very specific and deliberate things. Invite the underdog in the front door. Pay them to learn like it's their job. And then build them castles in their hometowns. It's worked in Fresno. It's working in Bakersfield and Toledo, Ohio, and it can work in underestimated cities all over the world. Thank you so much for your attention. Support for TED Business comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software 
with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash tedbusiness. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash tedbusiness. Odoo, modern management made simple. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. So Irma, your talk shares a lot of the details of what your organization does to help revitalize underdog cities. But I think something that our listeners would be interested in hearing more about is your journey as an entrepreneur. When you were working in tech, what were you doing and what made you decide to give that up and start your own business? Well, I had just spent a bunch of years in school trying to learn and understand technology. And so I was latching on to that as my life raft. But it was a big struggle for me, honestly. Like I was not exceptionally good at it. I wasn't a natural programmer. Things did not come easily to me. It felt like a real battle. I was freelancing for a bunch of companies inside of a very small incubator in my hometown at the time. And the CEO of that incubator challenged me at one point. He was like, Irma, why are you the only person in Fresno doing anything in technology? And I was like, oh, that's not true. But it occurred to me then that a lot of the business world didn't know who these folks were. And that was sort of a call to action. That was sort of the first moment, I think, I when I realized that I was going to be a better entrepreneur than I was a technologist, but maybe I could begin to bridge some of that together for the two worlds that were existing in my hometown. You know, in your talk, you mentioned the challenge that people face when kind of starting into a new career. They may have a job that can pay the bills now. And I assume in some ways that was true for you, like you had work in tech you were thinking this other path might be better for you. Did you get any pushback from people in your family? Like, are you crazy to just give this up and do something risky? Oh, on so many levels, I got pushback. <laughs> I, I continue to get pushback today, <laughs> for being honest. Sometimes it's not an option to leave. For me, I knew I could go to this incubator and begin freelancing for a bunch of folks. Um, well, I say I knew I could. I believed I could was is more accurate. Plus, I didn't have a family at that moment in time. And so making the decision to hop out of something that's a sure thing into something that's completely unknown, I absolutely can see why people don't do that. You mentioned that you knew there were other people like from Fresno doing tech, trying to enter that world. Is that where the idea for Bitwise came from? Was there sort of a spark of inspiration when you realized, ah, this is what I'm going to do. This is the business I'm going to start. The actual first step toward Bitwise, which turned out to be a many year long journey, um, was the, the challenge that that CEO at the incubator gave me about, hey, where are these people and why are you the only one led to an effort called 59 Days of Code, which was my answer to that challenge. It was hey, I, these people exist and they do awesome things. We're going to prove it by throwing a big showcase uh, competition and we're going to put real prizes at the end of it. And these folks 
may or may not start their own businesses. It turned out to be wildly successful. But then out of that community, recognizing that these folks were doing wonderful work without community, without a place to go. Like we literally were hijacking tables inside of Starbucks, you know, spending a lot of money on lattes that none of us really had yet. We didn't have yet that sort of disposable income where buying several $6 coffees made any sense. And so that led to a co-working space and it was open 24 hours and it was just a place for technologists and folks in the art community and entrepreneurs to gather and crash into each other. And then honestly, that led to another thing. It was sort of exposed yet another issue, which was that those of us who were trying to make a go in this industry were having a hard time finding the next person to hire when our little thing was getting off the ground. And when I say little, I really mean that. I mean, one, two, three person shops or creative firms or PR firms or anything technology adjacent. Where do you find that other person? And so we began to run classes, nights to teach whatever that skill was. When you take all of that together, that you you can demonstrate a true need and a hunger from people who exist already in this place, who can make more of those people. That really is the beginning, or at least the seedlings of what Bitwise does today. I mean, being a CEO, you have to think about so many different things. And there's the running of the day-to-day business. There's raising money. There's thinking about growth. Um, What part of that do you find the most challenging? What do you wish you had more time to do and what do you wish you didn't have to do? Probably raise money. (laughs) I imagine that's what most people don't want to have to do. That's exactly it. That's the the answers are the same. The thing that you um, have to do, no question, is make sure that the bank account is stuffed full of money at all times. The thing you don't want to spend your time doing is making sure the bank account is stuffed full of money at all times. And the thing you wish you had more time for is the same thing, stuffing the bank full of money. Nothing really moves without that. And it is your moral obligation to, you know, pay the people who trust you enough to come and give you their time and their talent. And so if you're asking them to do that, to trust you in that way, you've got to spend your time to make good on that trust. Yeah, I'm sure that's a challenge for most entrepreneurs. But I I imagine there are people, too, that really like that pitching process. How do you feel about it? Do you have any kind of personal tips and advice for people who are thinking about pitching a business or have to do that on a regular basis? I'll be super honest. We didn't know at all what we were doing when we went out to raise money. In fact, we didn't know you could successfully raise money by pitching a business that was burning cash, you know, month over month. That's a foreign world to us. Understand, again, we were born in Fresno, California, in the Central Valley, where the standard of business is that you grow an almond for a dollar and you sell it for a dollar and 10 cents, right? And so that is what business looks like to the people around you. And that's the advice that you get all the time. That's also the business that banks understand. And so when you come to folks in a place like Fresno, where you're not known for technology and you say, we're running this really amazing technology company, but by the way, it loses money and we need to raise some folks really laugh hard in your face. (laughs) It is really um, a a humbling Mm. experience. And so it wasn't until we got outside of the Valley And began to network in the Bay Area and other primary markets where folks would say, well, why don't you just raise a Series A? You don't go to CEO school. It just doesn't, (laughs) there isn't one for us. And so our assumption is that everybody's on a similar journey as we are on, which is 
you have to have a lot of faith in it, the belief that you can learn these things and that you'll be trusted to learn these things. And that's the same belief and trust that we try to impart to the folks who come to us and come through our programs. It's okay to not know what you're doing. It's not okay to stay not knowing what you're doing, right? So that has to change. That's the only piece that has to change. We deeply, deeply believe in that growth mindset um, in the technology industry, which so what? So I wasn't good at technology when I graduated from college, right? I got good enough to make the money <laughs> that I needed. <laughs> and that journey really helped expose me to other things I was going to be good at. And that's the point. I loved sitting down with Irma and hearing the story of her experience as an entrepreneur. I do think the bigger point of her talk, though, is this focus on the community. We hear so much about individual stories, people who overcome adverse, difficult situations, leave their communities, go on to have success for themselves. But what's special about Irma is that she went back. She went back and she changed not only her life, but the life of others and her whole city. And that's what really makes it a success story. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Cosmic Standard with help from Asia Simpson and Eliza Smith and fact-checked by Nicole Bodie. Our mixer is Sam Baer. And special thanks to Anna Phelan, Michelle Quint, and Colin Helms. I'm Corey Hajim. Next week, Madupe Akinola will be back with more episodes of TED Business. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks running shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.